Welcome to the season seven finale of Film is Lit. Finally, yeah. since we've had a little break. <laughs> Don't mention between. that. Don't. <laughs> Finally, we've gotten to the finale. Mm-hmm. At last. Sorry for the break. We are back with a bang, or should I say, a fire. Little fires everywhere. <laughs> This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. We also are a review podcast, so we'll review the book and the movie as mm -hmm. well as comparing and contrasting it. This is a full spoilers podcast. My name is Danny. He, him. I am the film expert, self-appointed. And my name is Laura. She, her. And I'm the lit expert. And... I don't know what we would do without the review aspect of this podcast, because I sure can't hold back my opinions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I can't wait to not hold back my opinions on this piece. Yes. I'm going to try to be analytical, but <laughs> I have a feeling that my passionate distaste for both of these pieces is gonna like come out <laughs> well yeah we're self-appointed experts we as we've mentioned so emotion does factor into our reviews yes and we're not coming at this purely analytically and you know like robots comparing and contrasting you know we're, we're reviewing it like humans well, we're humans no for sure but i think like there's one side of reviewing where you can just harp on something because you don't like it Mm -hmm. But you don't have any evidence to back up why you don't like it. Looking then, at you, Armand White, professional critic. That's right. Real inside baseball here. Shots fired. <laughs> um, Coming after you, Armand White. At Armand White. <laughs> but, but contrast that, I think, with... I think that I have substantial evidence of why this is an objectively poor... Not only adaptation, but I don't think that the book is what it was purported to be, I think. Mm. I think it spent 46 weeks on the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And so I was actually looking forward to reading this book, but I was pretty shocked at how much I did not like that. I, I, I thought it was a pretty poor mm. novel, but I'm not a huge novel, I'm not a novel fan anyway. Novels are not my bag, but... So can you describe the difference between novels and then a regular story? Well, I just like nonfiction. Gotcha. I just think that there's a there are rare moments where I get passionately interested in fiction writing. Unless and it's Stephen King. That's what I rare exactly. Yeah. That's my rare case. And I'm especially weary about going into contemporary novels. And I think this is just maybe maybe it's an unfortunate result of having read so much that I t tend to be really critical because I've just, like, the stuff that's really good is the cream of the crop. Like, you know, if I was just reading, like, romance novels every week, I don't think I would have the best critical eye. And I'm not, tr I'm not trying to, like, say I'm, I'm the greatest reader of all time, but I do read quite a lot. And so not only do I just naturally prefer nonfiction, I think that also bleeds into fiction where it's like okay if you're not a Stephen King level writer I'm not probably going to be grabbed mm -hmm. very easily understood 
Yeah. I guess that's analogous to my take on movies, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you start seeking out artistic movies, stuff that challenges the audience, you know, your more mass audience friendly fare is not going to compel you. For sure. Yeah. yeah I, that's exactly. And I think what's funny about this show, well, see, I think we, we ran into this with Where'd You Go, Bernadette, where I'm bewildered when it comes to why that book was so popular. Mm -hmm. And I think I, this might be me just being really critical of the reading public in general. But when I see a case like this, where I truly don't think it's not the worst book, but it's not 46 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list book. Um, which, which to be fair, if anyone wants to play inside baseball, the New York Times bestseller list is not actually a very good ranking of how good a book is. It's more like how popular, how well is it selling? We've all been on that list. Am Pretty I right? Much, right. So I think that to me is reflective of the general reading populace, where if people are really enjoying books like Where'd You Go, Bernadette? in Little Fires Everywhere, I would say, I think you need to do a little bit more reading <laughs> before you decide that those are good books. Hmm. I, that's just my opinion. I know that's coming down pretty harsh. No, but this is, you only hear the truth here on Film is Lit. We're I not just, one of those cuck podcasts that's like just delivering you what you time, want to hear. Every time you use that word, it cracks me up. But anyway, I know that that is a harsh opinion, but I just think there's so many, like novels are a dime a dozen. Uh -huh. And if something shoots to the top of that list, I do expect it to be very, very good. And it's, I think it's shocking how often I go into, and speaking of lists, speaking of book lists, Reese Witherspoon book club books have become actually a little bit of a well, sticking point with me. I'd like to have a little conversation with her about what yeah. she puts on those book lists because I have read a few. There were a couple that I genuinely enjoyed. Nothing comes to mind right now, but there are a few that I genuinely enjoyed. But then now recently, like I read Where the Crawdads Sing, I really did not like that book. I almost to the point where like I would not even want to talk about it on the podcast because I just have so many issues with it. You're really pushing out the baby boomer moms that make up 50% of, our, okay. of our listenership. Okay, <laughs> let's let's have a conversation about like why you like these books. <laughs> um, I, I just, the amount of books that I've read from her choice list that I really didn't like or thought had like very problematic approaches to things like race makes me question what she sees in those books. And then when I see that she not only produces and also stars in a show like this, that seems like very unfocused and maybe misinterpreting some larger questions that we will get into further in the podcast. Um, it just makes me want to have a conversation, like check in with her and be like, like, what are you seeing in these things that, that make you passionate enough to make them into like a passion project? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting as stars progress through their career and age how their uh, interests change mm. and perhaps the projects they choose change reese witherspoon's uh, career has been varied to say the least so, right yeah it's and someone like tom cruise who is now an actor who produces all his own stuff has kind of had an opposite arc where he's only getting better yeah. it seems like <laughs> but he also has his niche and that's about it <laughs> True, but his niche makes 
billions of we don't have well, to get yeah. into no, no, I, no to your point i'm saying like yeah. like he sticks with the, he sticks with what he knows and he's good at it and i think reese witherspoon has some good stuff i like her acting i don't think oh, she's yeah. a bad actor i just it's just so strange that like this one person has just randomly become someone that we look to in real life outside of her acting to career to guide our book choices as mm-hmm. well as the shows that we're now seeing on big platforms like Hulu. I mean, another thing that we watched, I think that she produced was Big Little Lies. That was good. That was great. I liked that a lot. That was the first thing she produced with Hello Sunshine. Yeah, that yeah. was really, and she starred in it. Yeah. Um, but like I said, it's just like, it's just interesting why we're letting this like, just sort of run of the mill wasp actress guide our opinions on stuff. I'm not really sure why that's happening. Hmm. <laughs> it, I don't know. I don't. It's, we might find out. I don't find it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, little fires everywhere. So usually we're pretty aligned on our book and movie tastes, but we're in agreement on the show, which we did not enjoy, but we're in disagreement. We're diametrically opposed on Bose. the show. What? I was quoting Hamilton. Um, Diametrically opposed, Bose. On the on the book. I quite enjoyed it, although it is not perfect. And it does have the number one thing we talk about on this podcast, which is something we don't like. We usually see it in movies, not in books, but uh, coincidences. That is my number one thing that makes me want to beat my head against the wall so with both of these pieces. The show has a bunch. The book has a few in the back end. Uh, which I, I feel like tarnished it a bit. Um, I, a few or also a lot. I think that there are also a lot in the book that just kind of took away. There's there uh, To be fair, there's a lot of interesting conversations in the book. Right, which is why I, I think I'm focusing more on that. Yeah. And I'm usually a stickler for contrivances and stories, and I'm not giving the book a pass. But I think the book more deftly deals with some very compelling, morally gray scenarios, which the book doesn't answer wisely. I think it lets you, the viewer, make uh, the reader, rather, make your own decisions and have your own opinions. So yeah, let's get into a synopsis of the story. This is a full spoilers podcast. We recommend that you read and watch the material before you listen to any episode. Maybe you can skip the show for this episode. It's eight 45-minute <laughs> long hour episodes. Long, hour long episodes. Hour, are they really an hour? Yeah. They sure oh, felt yeah. like they never ended. They, they went on forever. So the synopsis for Little Fires Everywhere, it follows the intertwined fates of the picture-perfect Richardson family in Shaker, Ohio, idyllic town, mm-hmm. as they like to claim, mm-hmm. uh, and the enigmatic mother and daughter, Mia and Pearl Warren, who upend their lives. The story explores the weight of secrets, the nature of art and identity, the ferocious pull of motherhood, and the danger in believing that following the rules can avert disaster. <laughs> Ooh. <sighs> so yeah, when did the book come out and who was it written by? It was written in 2000, or it was published in 2017 by Celeste Ng. And I believe the show came out in 2020. Yeah, right? it came out and it in was 20... filmed in about 2019. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, so the filmed before the pandemic came out. 
on my birthday, 2020, March 9th. Oh, that's cute. I didn't and know that. they had one premiere. They were about to have another premiere. And guess what happened? The pandemic. The pandy. So, yeah, it was one of the first shows to come out as the pandemic was happening. So it's been looped in with the pandemic, but it's a pre-pandemic show and that it was like coming out as the world was shutting down. Which is so funny because there's a moment in the show where one character, Lexi, figures out that she's pregnant. And I shit you not, instead of a pregnancy test, they literally use a COVID test as like a hand insert to show. Yeah. And it literally looks like someone just took a felt tip pen and just drew like two little red lines on yeah. the COVID test, which is so interesting to me because I, I was laughing so hard. I sent you a screenshot and I was just like, what the fuck is this? Like, did someone literally just pull a rapid test from the front production, mm -hmm. like yeah. the production staff and just like use it as, but then you pointed out that it was actually filmed in 2019. So I don't know what that is, but I've never looked, I've never ever seen a pregnancy test. that looks like a rapid COVID yeah, test. I honestly think it's the exact same test cartridge. that we have at home no it for... is it, it is it's it's a it's an antigen cartridge hmm. that i i don't know how like that technology for testing is not new it was yeah it was adapted for covid testing and so but but the way like how would a production team have gotten a hold of that pre-covid like, the only I, like, thing i can think of is maybe insert shots like which it, it was shot later yeah. so I mean, it could have possibly i mean that's very common for shows that are premiering to continue to film little scenes here and there as the show is coming out that's not rare at all so that's my only guess i'm i'm looking through my notes just to see if i noted what episode it was in because it, it is in a later episode so, so yeah that, that was be... episode four i believe okay. because episode five is the abortion clinic episode okay so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's pretty stupid. It's and you know if if it was truly like deep pandemic and they wanted to have an insert shot of Pearl holding the test and not even a right aid around the corner was open because you know we we're during the shutdown and someone was like you know what let's just use a COVID test. Yeah. You would hope that Hulu would see that now and be like let's reshoot that insert. Yeah. <laughs> It's laughable. I'm going to add it into our into our post because people will just laugh. I think they'll laugh along with me because it's just like so obviously a, a COVID test. Yeah, we'll post it on Instagram. <laughs> it's, to... it's pretty funny. Yeah, we'll we'll post it and be like COVID or pregnancy test. Right. You tell us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I I completely derailed us. Yeah. So little fires everywhere. The book I can say is more focused on the entitlement of the rich. Mm -hmm. That's my interpretation. So Elena Richardson and her family, she has four children, all within a year of each other. So she had them one after the other. They live in Shaker Heights, which is your typical burb. affluent, burb, predominantly white neighborhood. And these people are entitled and snotty because this is their life and and they're not used to anything that's not perfect and they want everything to go their way and they have the money for things to go their way. Now, their lives are quote unquote upended as the synopsis says by Mia and Pearl Warren who are these wandering kind of modern itinerants. Yeah, that's like a more PC version of like nomads, right? Yeah. 
I think Nomad is still fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, they're like me and Pearl are these modern day nomads moving from city to city. We don't know why they live this life or why Mia, the mother, is doing what she's doing or why she's decided to to live her life this way. But Elena's whole perfect life starts to crumble and she views this new change of pace as a threat to her life that she's so quote unquote worked so hard Mm -hmm. to cultivate. Mm -hmm. Unknowingly though, she's very vapid and clueless. And And that makes her racist. Well, not in the book because Mia's race is not defined in the book. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I guess I should say prejudice. Prejudice, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So she's not racist, but she is very prejudiced against not even the poor. Just I would say middle class as well, because she is upper class. I think just people that she doesn't. I don't think she respects their lifestyle. Mm. And more like more generally, I think she thinks that she's done it all right, Mm -hmm. and so anyone who lives differently just has done it wrong. Sure. She's very sort of black and white. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So now the show adds a different element of making Mia. A person of color so there's the racial element that is not present in the book there is a racial element with the secondary plot which is going on which is the custody battle of Mei Ling mm-hmm. this plot is that Elena's friends Linda and Mark McCullough they've been trying to have a baby for years and it hasn't been able to happen so they adopt legally or attempt to adopt this young Chinese baby, year old. Her name is uh, Mei Ling, and they call her Maribel once they bring her into her home. But then Mia is working at a Chinese takeout restaurant, and she works with the mother of... Coincidentally, shall I add? Yes. So that is... we'll, We'll get into that. And she discovers that Bibi is wants her child back and gave the child away left her at a fire station because she was freezing cold didn't have any money and it was the only way to save her baby but now she's come around and wants the baby back and she's more like financially stable right exactly so and mia knows where the baby is and because she also coincidentally works in the richardson's house and coincidentally (laughs) is asked to come over Mm -hmm. to see the child yes uh yeah i'm starting to get a little heated yeah (laughs) and so then she makes bb aware of this and then then a whole custody battle erupts it goes to court and of course elena is pissed because linda is her best friend and she knows how long linda has been trying to have a child she finally is able to adopt and as soon as she's able to adopt then her baby is threatened of being taken away from her so now she's mad at mia for a few reasons. And might I also add that Mia is coincidentally able to pay for all of the legal fees for Bibi to fight for her child because she coincidentally had a $500,000 photograph that her Right, that was like, a little, like come on. That was that I'm like really half a million dollars yeah. for it, how did was that the case in the book? Yeah, she sells okay. the, she sells the painting. Gotcha. I had forgotten finance. about that. See, what I was hoping with the show was that they were going to see all of the flaws that I saw in the book and try to rectify them. Obviously, I think that's one of the things that we've discussed can be a beautiful thing about an adaptation, if mm-hmm. it's a successful one, is it it fixes issues that can arise in books. Unfortunately, I think that this one tried to do that, 
and made it even worse. <laughs> well, it, it does what we hate in that it adds extra stuff that to too. pad it out to be a TV show. Right. See, this this could have been a real solid five episode miniseries. Yeah, and and honestly, I'm such a purist that I don't I don't know that this couldn't even have been a two hour movie. Like mm. a really tight two hour movie. I don't know why. There see, oh, this is one of the things. This is what I wrote in my notes. I thought that the fire right in the beginning of the movie and uh, right in the beginning of the book was the only piece of momentum that's supposed to drive people through to reading to the end of the book is to figure out why this fire has happened. The problem with that narrative approach is that there's no, there's not enough interesting stuff for me to care by the end of the book that the house is on fire. Mm. I, like I felt like it just dragged and dragged and dragged. And then finally when we were done, I didn't care. I was like, yeah, I would have lit the house on fire too. Like, I don't care. I would have lit this book on fire. Yeah. <laughs> and then, so Mia happens to work with Bibi and happens to be working with the Richardsons who happen to be friends with Linda. Mm -hmm. That whole storyline, I think, is contrived. The way that Mia puts together the pieces to figure out that Mei Ling. Even the fact Mei Ling was dropped off at a random fire department. And I find it very difficult to believe that the adoption system would have placed a child in the hands of someone so close to a place where there's a link to the original family. Because something like this could very easily happen. Mm -hmm. I find that extremely hard to believe. So while yeah. I don't have an inner workings understanding of the American adoption system, I find that highly improbable. Another thing that really bugged me, Mrs. Richardson just happens to be a journalist. So she has access to all of these files because she can just like go and run up to New York and be like, hey, I'm with AP or something and like pull files. I She's guess, there for I, a reason or like she, like her job is that for a reason. You know what I mean? I guess you're right. I viewed it as her abusing her privilege like as a white reporter. Like she's, I agree, but the unreal, like this story is a stretch. This story is a crazy... Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is why I don't like novels. I, I, I just find it so hard to ground myself in the reality of all of these things. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, like, again, Elena is a journalist is on purpose because there's this whole story that needs to be unraveled in this story. So mm -hmm. there has to be a journalist in there somewhere to, like, help you unravel it. Gotcha. It's like, eh. Yeah. It's, eh, it's a little easy for me. And then the... Final, one of this is the crowning glory of frustration for me is that the way that Mia's portrait that sells for half a million dollars in the book, the way that that's found out is that the kids happen to be on a field trip and happen. It's the, the photograph is not even included in the normal tour that they're on with their class, it's in a small adjacent room, and one of the kids happens to walk in and see the photograph of Mia and identify it as Mia. Mm -hmm. Why? Like that, come on. Like, why? I think that that is one thing that the show does a little bit more organically because it's just like a report. And it's printed it's in the printed paper. It's printed in the news. And it's, it's imaginable that it, it could have made the New York Times. And, and only the, Izzy discovers it right. in so the show. Right, so that is a little bit more organic. I don't know why that's in the book. Right. I think there's a simpler way to discover that. Mm -hmm. 
Anyway, so those are the things I just wrote down on the top of my head. Yeah. I think that there are more, but I think that that's lazy writing. Yeah. <laughs> There's the coincidence as well in the book and the movie of Elena wanting to get dirt on BB. Yeah. And she's like, maybe she didn't want the her baby at all and she's like i'll go check the local abortion clinic to see if she ever went there Mm -hmm. and that's how she discovers that pearl's name was there but little does she know that it's lexi who put down pearl's name Mm -hmm. and she happens to be friends with the head of the clinic who then in an extremely unrealistic move leaves elena alone in her office and elena pulls up and she also happens to have the document pulled up on her computer and Mm -hmm. leaves the room and that's how elena finds out about that abortion i'm sorry but hello coincidence alley she's a good reporter no i'm kidding my my only pushback on that is i think celeste ing is making a very astute observation about these tight-knit communities where the social elite they do know everyone, and they use that sure. to their advantage. Specifically, they know cops, sure. right? And yeah. Elena can get it. So I think her knowing, like, the principal and the guidance counselor and the mm-hmm. the sheriff and the head of the abortion clinic, while it's a stretch for her to know all these things, it's more subtle in the book. These are rich elite. They, they're smart about making a, a tight community where they cannot be held like liable for anything they can Mm -hmm. just use someone else Mm -hmm. everyone uses each other to just do whatever they want to do and also like you said with the tight-knit community i think it's really clear that mia is of some different race than white because of how quickly the community closes in around itself like she's so quickly identified as an outsider and Mm -hmm. i think that that it's not just the outsider status of not being from Shaker. I think that there's like an extra fear that's baked into the book. And I'm saying that this is a, a astute observation by Celeste Ng. Yeah. That there's, and, and I even read an article that quoted Ng about how she didn't feel like she could necessarily speak to like one particular marginalized group. And mm-hmm. so she left Mia ambiguous but she was happy with the decision in the show to make Mia and Pearl a black American family because ironically, I think I'm going to insert this, she felt like another person could bring that to the screen more effectively than she could. Uh But we do have to remember that this show was also run by a white woman. Mm -hmm. So I have, I have, feelings about you know a white director who came in and even is quoted as saying i don't know that i could have brought the nuances to this show that another person could have but quote unquote you know we can't say that like white people can't talk about race i don't like that opinion so but what she did was hire seven writers to write this show so that they could look at things from quote unquote multiple perspectives. And I even, I'm gonna read this quote because I think that's actually a failure of the show. I think there's too many cooks in the kitchen. 
Yes. And I think that the tonal shifts in the show are unacceptable and make and really, really, really dive this down into like the lower echelon of television. But this is what she said. We did not take a step without three people being like, wait a minute, hold on. Let me think of it in this way or this way. I think that comes through in the script. It's it's almost like it's scared to take this a is, stance. This is showrunner Liz Teaglar or yeah. Reese Witherspoon? Liz Teaglar. Gotcha. Thanks, yeah, for attributing that correctly. So do you see what I mean, though? Yeah. Because it seems like the show is so scared to come down on a specific conversation or opinion, not because they want to keep it ambiguous, which is, I think, what the book does successfully. But right. I think this is a case where there's so many people saying, let's be careful. Let's be careful. We don't want to piss anyone off. We don't want to come down too hard on an opinion. So let's, you know, leave it ambiguous so that people can read into it what they want. But I think that's the wrong approach. And again, like I said, I think this is a case of too many cooks in the kitchen the tonal shifts are nuts. It fails for me. Yeah. The book is about a few ideas. The show is about eight ideas. And it shows too long. It's too bloated. And it's not well acted or written. Uh, before oh, we get into gosh, that, I yeah. just, I think I want to make my case for my mild enjoyment yeah please do the book yes go ahead because the book has a few instances of extremely intriguing morally gray thought exercises Mm -hmm. so okay thought exercise one was mia right to take pearl as her own Mm -hmm. in this nomadic lifestyle no less Mm -hmm. you are mine (laughs) That's Laura's. You are of my body. That's Laura's pitch perfect impression of what's her Carrie what's, Washington. Carrie Washington. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Carrie Washington, but she's not the I best. I am too. Yeah, but this is so. Back to the thought exercise. Not her thing. <laughs> so my opinion on Mia flip flopped throughout the mm. book, mm-hmm. and I cannot tell you even at the end of the book if I really think that she made the right decision. Mm -hmm. There are times where I'm like, well, yes, but her family disowned her. Her, She was in this very fragile place in her life. And this, her brother just died. Perhaps she was searching for meaning. And if she didn't find this meaning, perhaps she would have died, whether by her own hand or who knows? This is kind of the purpose that led her to live this life. And it's not like she gave Pearl an extremely impoverished life. Yes, they were on the road. Yes, they didn't have a lot of money, but they weren't full-on homeless at any point. They always were able to find another place very quickly. So it's like, yes. But at the same time, it's like she did have an agreement. She she they was paid. paid they paid her. You know, she knew what she was signing up for. This is the Ryans. The Ryans, yes. Or perhaps she didn't know what she was signing up for, but the point is she signed up for it, and that's she made a deal, right? And the Ryans, did. they had no idea that she was going to do this. And, of course, everyone has the right to start a family, whether it's adopting or going through a surrogate or... or IVF. IVF, anything. Every family has the right to that. So that's, that's thought exercise number one. Number two is... Who is the real villain of the story? Elena is extremely pompous, extremely prejudiced towards the working class or the Mm -hmm. poor class. 
But she has her friend Linda's best interests at heart. She right? really does. She's she's an idiot, and she <laughs> and she can be mean towards people, but in her mind doesn't think that she's acting wrong. She's not acting out of malice. Right. And and the other thing too is we can see that she's very sympathetic because she's a woman who grew up in that middling time where her mother was probably telling her, as we see in the mo- in the show that we don't see in the book, but her mother is probably telling her, you know, oh, you had your career time, you know, and that was nice for you, but now you're a married woman and now your job is to have babies and take care of them so give up your career whereas they're also in the 90s there's starting to be that social pressure of women can do it all you can have the children you can have your career mm-hmm. you can be that superwoman and not make sacrifices and pretend that you're not like cracking under the pressure and so that makes her sympathetic too right in the book like yeah i completely yeah. agree and she had dreams to become this big time journalist right but then she also you know settled down with a family in shaker and then you know was kind of trapped yeah and she saw her ex-boyfriend become this big time reporter which that was expanded in the show she has a little fling with him in the show which Mm -hmm. that's not in the book yeah so you know you kind of feel a little bad for her that she wanted this life but she took another yeah. fork down the road and had a family and I'm not saying having a family that will trap you wherever you are but for her it did yeah and and social expectations did the same yes. thing because exactly. she yeah like she's she's just trying to do everything because that's what people have told her to do right and she might have been content with the job mm-hmm. it's yeah it's very complicated and yes. it makes her sympathetic as your point yeah. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. as opposed to the show where she is outright like Cruella DeVille villain. <laughs> just like such a bitch. Yeah. Like at so many but, points you're just like, But like Mia, why? Mia's kind of a, a B too. Mia's an absolute <laughs> fucking bitch. Are you kidding me? The way that she, literally the first time Elena says hello to you, she's like, hello? Yeah. Like you fucking bitch. It's, it's so painful. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Literally the amount of times where she, like the malice in her voice, literally to anybody except BB. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, but there are times, too, where, like, she talks to the kids, um, the Richardson kids. Like, she eviscerates Izzy at one point in the show. Izzy does not deserve it. And she just, like, cuts her down. And I'm like, my issue, I think, the book for me made Mia a little bit too much of a saint. I think she's a complicated character, but there were a lot of moments where it was just like, she's just like always like this compassionate. She always does have an answer in the book. She always has an answer. I think she's slightly two dimensional. I think she's an interest. She makes interesting decisions, but my issue with her character was she's a little too saint like. Yes. And she always kind of gets out of things. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, they went the other way with the show. And I don't know why. I, I just don't see yeah. how that adds to her complexity. I think it actually simplified her character and actually made me come down on the side of like, she was acting out of selfishness when she took Pearl. Mm. Because she's so much less of a sympathetic character that I don't see the complexity to her decision. I see that as just like, again, like you are my child. That was, that was her only argument. That she I could come am with your it. mother. 
the exactly. SNL. Yes, mother. Yeah. But so. but that takes the complexity away from her. It, it was just like, oh, I feel, and that's another. Th- okay, whatever. I'm sorry. I, I'm like, I'm just. Getting <laughs> I, I have so one many, more point, yeah, go and ahead. then yeah. Go so ahead. the final thought exercise, moral quandary, quagmire, if you will. Who has the right to baby Mei Ling? I was going to bring that up when I started ranting, so I'm so, so glad you're this. My this thought. is the big crux, the big conflict of the book, and it's about like half of the show as well. Is that it? You have two mothers here: the birth mother, biological mother, and the adoptive mother. Bibi Chow left her baby at a fire station so the baby would survive, but. Once you leave your baby at a fire station, like that's you relinquish your rights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the McCullas legally did all the work and were in the process of adopting Mei Ling. So that's another big argument. Both mothers have a stake there. It's like with when it comes to BB, it's like, well, even though she relinquished her rights, can people not have second chances? Right? That's the whole thing, you know, that you can the whole second chances argument applies to so many different things like prisoners in jail it's like do once a person is arrested can it's like is that it is can they not become a better person same thing with mothers you know they can be in a tough spot but no one gets it right 100% of the time well and you're literally quoting the show i think one of the most compelling um, performances in the show is by the woman who plays Linda, who, by the way, is in Mad Men. Yes, Rosemary DeWitt. Yes. Very good actress. She was incredible in the courtroom scene where she's giving her deposition, and she happens to sort of misspeak where she says, like, even though my child looks Chinese, and the lawyer is very quick to... This, again, is the prosecuting sort of... Or the defendant for um, Bibi... The representative for BB very quickly jumps on her and is like, oh, like, you know, like that, she just looks Chinese to you. Like, is that, you know, kind of tries to pick at her and she, and she kind of has this breakdown and she's like, you know, I'm just, I maybe don't say things the right way. I Like I am doing my best and not every mother gets it right a hundred percent of the time. Yes. And she makes a really compelling argument. I don't think that there's any question that this woman has been through absolute hell. All she wants is a family. And she's tried for years. And not only has she tried with her husband and not been able to get pregnant, she's watched her best friend not only have three children, but also get pregnant a fourth time and didn't want it. Right. (laughs) And still go forward with that pregnancy. And this is something that the show adds, speaking of pregnancy, let's hold on to that thought, that the book does not have. So... The book only mildly suggests that perhaps Izzy was an accident, but never confirms nor denies it. The show explicitly makes it clear that the Richardsons wanted three kids and that's it. Elena was going back to work and Izzy was an accident. And as she's pregnant, Elena says multiple times that she does not want the kid there's no discussion, though, about abortion. I mean, I don't know why. There's they... a little... When her mom comes over, her mom I, is like, see, that's I, not... I didn't really get that scene. I'm like, wait a second. Is she pro or against... I didn't get that scene at all. I think that she was like... Her mom was like, it's not an option for for people like us, I think is the quote. You know, it's not a... It's not a... It's some, because we can take care of... Like, we have enough... 
money to support a child. But then Elena kind of fires back like, is it, is it not an option? Like, right. I don't understand why wouldn't it? Yeah. So I think she was questioning her mother's approach to the quagmire a little bit. I I think that she was, she's actually like considering having an abortion. Right. And her mother's like, well, like, why would you do that if, because, because her, in her mother's mind, Elena's job is to be a mother. And so it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter how many kids they have, if she could give up her career, which her mother wants her to do, she would have time to take care of that fourth child and not feel so stressed about returning to work. I got to be honest, as I was watching those final episodes, I was also on my phone a bit. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> so me, maybe I, I was didn't checked out. Maybe I didn't episodes, uh, watch but... that scene properly. So yeah, so this case. this segues incredibly into a huge huge difference as we're discussing yeah. now. So in the book, the big conflict between Elena and Izzy is that Elena just doesn't understand her daughter and her biggest fear is that she doesn't want to lose her daughter. And I will say that chapter nine, when we get, it's the only time that we really get Elena's like inner thoughts. It, it almost like switches to first person narrative. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite part of the book because the other thing that they talk about is like her anxiety about having her daughter ends up being projected on Izzy and like her fear that Izzy won't be able to find her way because she is so different ends up turning into this animosity. That is really complex. That's a really complex look at motherhood. Yes. And at roots, I think this is this whole book kind of talks about, you know, who is your family? Where are your roots? You know, uh, how much does that go into your personality? That was such a compelling... That could have been a short story for me. Yeah. Blow that out into a few pages, and I think you've got an incredible look at motherhood. Yeah. And then cut to the show, which completely loses all... Does not have that discussion. Yeah. The show instead makes it a relationship of pure contempt. Pure contempt. Because, yeah, Elena didn't want a fourth kid. I mean, it was like... I'm not saying that there's no difference between three kids and four kids, but Elena in the show acts like she's having eight kids more. Yeah. And it's like, it's just another kid. Like, the difference between three and four, I don't know. It, it it didn't seem, it seemed like they were blowing it way out of proportion. Like, Elena was just like, that's it. Four's a cursed number. We're, fu- well, <laughs> we're done. Well, I think, I think that's because they had to, like, prop up the like how much animosity she had toward Izzy yes. so it was a little bit affected gotcha like the, yeah I, I mean yeah so because they wasted so much time with other shit in the show mm-hmm. why didn't they the why didn't they pour more energy into a complicated relationship exactly instead it's just these very on the nose lines right. so Elena eventually cracks under the pressure in the final episode and admits to Izzy in front of her other children, Moody and Trip and Lexi, that she never wanted her. And Lexi, the actress, is like, Mom! What? <laughs> and so that leads into another big difference, which we'll get to later. Mm. But, yeah, so that's, that's a huge diversion between the book and the show. 
is that the mom in the book is wanting to connect with her daughter but simply can't and her worst fears come true because she just makes the problem worse by interfering with it instead of like actually just talking to her daughter but yeah the show elena is just like just hates her daughter and Izzy hates Elena, and it grows because from there. Because she honestly has the right to, because Elena's a fucking bitch to her. So, yeah. like, never, like, I guess the times that she tries to reach out, it's from a very selfish place. Like, she just, she wants to be the perfect mother, and that's where I think her quote-unquote parenting comes from. I don't think it's because she's listening to who her children are. Yeah. She also doesn't understand Izzy's sexuality. Which is uh, another change. Not in the book. Yep. So Izzy's sexuality is not discussed at all in the show. They explicitly make her a lesbian. Or bi. So, bi. yeah. What do, we, what do we think about that? What do we think about adding a conversation about sexuality in two places in this show that I think <laughs> are fine discussions to have? But it muddied the water for the show because it just added more. I mean, I can see I can see the writer's room being like Izzy and Mia have this connection. How can we deepen this connection? Well, uh, let's make them gay and have a trauma relationship or have have trauma bonding over that. uh, Yeah, you can see the backwards writing being like. How, what's another reason how we can make Elena more distant from her youngest daughter? Well, mm-hmm. let's make her not even understand her sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. So, but then they're like, we can kill two birds with one stone here. T-Boss. Yes, by, uh, yeah, hashtag T-Boss. Hashtag T-Boss. We're making it a We're thing. We're going to make that a thing. That's my uncle's. I have to credit my uncle Tigger, but hashtag T-Boss. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing the hashtag. You can hear that? Hashtag T-Boss. <laughs> uh, Moving on. <laughs> Yeah, so they're like, let's kill, let's T-Boss here and and deepen the connection between Mia and Izzy by having Mia be gay. Now, or bye. Or bye. Yeah, could be bye. <laughs> um, so, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Now, That's Seinfeld. That's not mine. So this is yet another change. So Mia's sexuality is not discussed in the book. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest. I did pick up on some hints in the book that either she was asexual or gay because because she actively does not talk about men. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that not talking about men makes you gay, but every time they're talking about anything sexual, Mia would divert. Now this could be like her not wanting to confront her past because she had Pearl not through sex and it's never been something she's good at, but I did maybe perhaps get some hints that Mia was not straight in the book. I don't know if you you got so that. So I, I think it's interesting to talk about her asexuality because I picked up on the overtones. Remember when I said that she seemed like a saint? Mm. My confusion around that so even the photograph of her as pregnant is in a virgin mary Mm, yeah exhibit and she says at one point that art is the quote electric tension for her and she has she she's literally a virgin in the book other than the fact that she used a turkey baster for the conception of her daughter pearl right um the other thing too is that pearl 
is it's literally discussed in the book why Mia named Pearl the way she did, and it was literally after Hester Prynne's daughter from the Scarlet Letter. That's right. And so that is which also, we covered on this podcast, which we did. Yeah, we covered with Easy A, and so that's also sort of another like overtone of this like religious like veneration of the Virgin Mary, the Virgin Child. That makes me wonder if there is this sort of like asexuality to her. And I I don't necessarily know if that means that she's asexual. I don't think we have to like project too much about that in particular. Sure. But it was an interesting theme. I'm not sure it went anywhere. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting theme to have the, her. And I think it just, it. there are a few things that I'm not sure are completely fleshed out in the novel. And that's another thing that I kind of struggled with. I, I'm not sure that Celeste Ng necessarily knew where she came down on some of these issues. They were appropriately ambiguous mm-hmm. to create that like gray area space. But there were also some things where I was just like, there's not a resolution to this. So it doesn't feel like it adds anything. And that was one of those like loose ends that I felt like I was left wondering about. And I also don't know if it's fair for me to say it was completely missing from the end. Maybe if I go back and read it, I'll discover that again. But it was something that kept cropping up and then never really had a resolution or a purpose. So it's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah. Um, But to go back to the show, Mia actually is pretty sexually active. She has a few partners. Oh, she she, um, hooks up with the guy at the restaurant that she works in, in the show. Remember that? Yeah, she sleeps with that guy, like, after... Oh. Yeah. I, I don't remember that It's that It's, like, all. one scene. It doesn't okay. matter. Um, but she's pretty sexually active, and this is something that I felt icky about. I don't think it bothered you as much about it, but she, the big thing was that her art teacher, Pauline, who takes the photograph that ends up selling for half a million dollars, which I still <laughs> think is, like, absolutely absurd. <laughs> and also, the funny thing, too, is, like, they literally state multiple times that BB only needed like $30,000 to cover her legal fees. Right. And so I'm like, like on Pearl's side when she's like, why the fuck didn't you sell that photograph? Right. Which, by the way, you have the negatives of like, just fucking print another one Exa- for yourself. I, I was thinking the like, same thing. <laughs> I was like, you fucking kidding me? Like I'm on Pearl's side. Yeah. They could have, li- I mean, not that, not that you have to be, I think that's something that the show or that the book does. It's like, you know, you can't say that having experiencing homelessness isn't the wrong way to experience life. Like, it's not a bad thing. But I think especially when you bring a child into that picture, yeah, there is a lot of psychological challenges and obstacles that she'll have to overcome, like lack of, of like personal ties and friendships. Yeah. And that's something that Pearl, rightfully so, gets angry with her mother about. Because when her mom is like, all right, I'm ready to leave Shaker, she's like, no. Yeah. I have I have ties here now. I have roots. I have friends. I have a boyfriend. And now you just want me to, like, you know, let that all go because of your trauma. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, uh, to back up, the person who took that photograph of her is Pauline. It's an art teacher of hers in college. And while I know that she was of consensual age when she went into college, mm-hmm. I want to highlight that it is never appropriate for someone in a higher position of power to have a relationship with someone who's in a lower position of power when you're still in the same program. So, Lore, my love, it's funny that you say that 
now. We're recording this Saturday, October 8th. Just last week, there was a big scandal with the Try Guys. Have you been hearing yes, about this yes, shit? Yes, I did. So I fucking did. This is exactly I the same. I fucking did. I didn't even make that connection, but that's exactly how I feel. I fully believe if there are two consenting people, and, and they're not like like maybe even two years, two years apart, it, it's a power dynamic. It's a power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I get so uncomfortable when I see that. And I think that my frustration is that they used being gay as, or being queer as a narrative plot point, whereas they never had a, a fully respectful conversation about what that was gonna mean for someone like Izzy. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I think it's so disrespectful to make that connection between Izzy and Mia, quote unquote, deeper, just mm -hmm. because they have like a trauma bond over being different. Yeah. I, I just, and then, and then to also make it work by making a queer character problematic because she's in a position of power over a student isn't okay for me. Mm -hmm. That's not okay. I would I would feel different if maybe Mia had a, a same sex relationship with a, another student. Uh huh. Why? She, they, she had a beautiful relationship with her art teacher in the book. Yeah. And that art teacher took her in when her parents disowned her, and that's why that photograph was so meaningful. But then it's like. There's this whole thing in the show where Mia's like, oh, like, the only person I loved, like, died mm. after I completely left New York, and that's where my trauma is coming from now. It's like... Maybe it was the writers thinking that audiences weren't going to believe that Mia made the right decision by taking Pearl and leaving the Ryans. Maybe they're just like, we need to add more trauma here, perhaps. That's my well, conjecture. sprinkling trauma porn into things is not the way to get me to like your show. So, yeah. wrong yeah, approach I, to I that guess I really like the actress who played Pauline. Uh, I have no issue with yeah, her either. Uh, Anika Noni Rose. I've never seen her in anything else. Oh, wait. Um, she's in, she's in Dreamgirls and oh. she's in Princess and the Frog. She plays the main singer, the main character yeah. in Princess and the Frog. She's got an amazing voice, and ugh, it's unfortunate that they didn't actually utilize it in the show because she's incredible. I am Make a her huge, sing. I am a huge <laughs> fan of hers. Dreamgirls um, is one of my... That's that's like a silent favorite of mine. That, we should like, I'm cover that, right? Is that a book? Or Broadway? It was a, it was a Broadway I play. guess we I could do a loose... It is loosely based on the Supremes. Bingo. Diana Ross and the Supremes. <laughs> but, but then we'd have to find Boom, like a non-fiction... Like book about Diana Ross or something. But I you mean, love it's that. doable. Oh, yeah. and I, I would love that. You're right. Maybe we shouldn't have that. But yeah. anyway, she's amazing. Yeah. I've I've been a fan of her since like 2009, I guess, when Dreamgirls came out. I yeah. When did that come out? I think the show did their best to make it clear how consensual it was, but I do see your point. It's and still a power dynamic. Yeah. They shouldn't. Yeah. I mean, and also they don't. I couldn't tell if it was happening like during class or if like years had passed and mm. Mia yeah, I had graduated because I don't think she graduates. Oh wait, that's she that's right out. because she does drop out yeah. and then needs. She to... runs out of money. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I... that answers that question. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get to another difference between the book and the movie. There's quite a few. We've covered some. I know. I'm. I feel like I'm just like. 
yeah, not making so, headway on this. And then, actually, we've covered quite a bit now that I look at over our list of differences and similarities. There's the whole ex-boyfriend plot, Elena's ex-boyfriend. Now, we should say this segues into casting. Yes. So this... <laughs> that was funny. Though. There are such highs and lows in this yeah. in this cast. It's amazing. So I would say even though we don't like the show, period, it is a blanket statement, the show is not good, I think the casting is pretty friggin' spot on. Yeah. In that... The younger versions of the characters actually look like the and older people. Look like and older, sound. Yes. And yes. the family, the kids of Elena and Bill, they look like the kids they of those two. Really do. Actors. And they look like siblings. It's like yes. it's like chilling how much they look. And I'm not a huge fan. Well, I guess I should say if there's an argument to be made that two actors are going to act like siblings, I don't really care that they look alike. Like me and my brother don't really look alike, right? I, I, like mm -hmm. that's fine. That happens in the world. And if two actors are great, I don't want to force an actor who's great and an actor who just looks like the other actor but isn't a good actor. Right. Pairing, that's worse. But these kids, they were the highlight, I think, of the show for me. I think they are all the some of the stronger actors in the whole thing. Except for Moody. I, I hate to come down on this one kid, but Gavin Lewis. I didn't mind. I, I was not at, like, I don't know. Every time he spoke, it was cringe. Oh, I just, I just felt so awful for him. I just, I, yeah. I, I don't know. He didn't bother me very much. But um, I thought they were all great with the exception of Moody for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that Lexi Underwood playing Pearl was pretty exceptional considering how poorly the script was written a, a real life teenager she plays she was the age that she played which is so rare <laughs> right yeah that's almost unheard of right but yeah she was actually 15 going on 16 when they filmed and she, she really brings it um, right but then did you want to talk about elena and bill's Yes. Younger selves. Yeah. The casting in this is crazy. I, I did want to mention, I love the actor who played Trip, uh, Jordan. He was great. Um, Elsass. I haven't seen him in anything else. I thought he was really he good. He was. And, and he only comes into play in the second half of the season, because in the first half, he's kind of like the cool kid who's off to the side, who Pearl pines after, yeah. and he becomes very integral to the plot in the second half, so... I like that. So yeah, Anna Sophia Robb, who we covered in uh, Bridge to Terabithia with Sam Barnes last season. Baby mama. Yeah. Uh, so. Baby mama Barnes. <laughs> <laughs> They're about to have a baby. <laughs> As of this recording. Yay. Yeah. Um, if you're listening to this, they might be. She's probably playing this podcast to her stomach because they want right. to. They want to culture their baby really early. That's true. <laughs> so hi, baby Barnes. <laughs> Hello, baby Barnes. Yeah, it's. I think if it's a boy, thank you for naming it after me. Um, <laughs> so, wouldn't that be funny? Um, other people of other genders can be Danny. Oh, that's true. D a n y. Oh gosh, I'm canceled. Oh god. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's it. It's a gender neutral Let me, name. I I didn't even think about that. Pack my bags. <laughs> I knew a Danny, a, a girl Danny in in college. You fucking idiot i got i'm sexist anyway i'm continue. i'm canceled so anna sophia rob who by the way i had no idea she was in this and then i saw her and i was like oh i'm never gonna i'm not gonna see her as elena richardson all i'm gonna see is anna sophia rob but right color me absolutely wrong 
yeah. because she did an amazing job capturing the essence of Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. And there was even this one point where she walks into the office mm-hmm. and all you see is like a coat and her hair. And it literally looks like Reese Witherspoon is walking. Yeah. I don't know how she did it, but she does an amazing job. And it's also funny because our sister-in-law, Heather, I think is a dead ringer for Reese Witherspoon as yes. well. So I'm, I'm actually very good at seeing Reese Witherspoon in people's faces. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of practice. Yeah. So She is, though. She's a dead ringer. Yeah. Yeah. She, like, Reese Witherspoon with black hair. Brown hair, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the actress who plays young... Mia is Tiffany Boone. That's who that is. Yeah, she was in Nine Perfect Strangers. I did not make that connection. Yeah. Gotcha. She looks and sounds just like Carrie Washington. She did also an incredible job capturing... Capturing the Carrie Washington character that could have been Carrie Washington's character, but ends up being Carrie Washington overacting this terrible script. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you want to highlight any other of the great actors, but I- I'm sorry. What in the world was Carrie Washington doing? And also Reese Witherspoon was not her best in this show either. Yeah, Reese Witherspoon, it's hard for her to give a bad performance. I wouldn't say it's bad, but it is... It's just a little too sniveling, is, is mm-hmm. that it? It's, it's a little too on the nose mm-hmm. that she is uh, prejudiced and not like Trump racist, but like rich Ohio racist. So this brings up another interesting conversation that I do not like about the show. We've talked about a strength in the book is how ambiguous things are. Uh And the show is a huge problem for me because one of the things that I think serves as a very dangerous scapegoat for Americans is that we know what overt racism looks like. Uh And so a lot of people who aren't like crazy MAGA, Southern midwest crazy people who who just like are just outright racist and like like don't care Uh but the bigger problem with racism is the subtleties that people don't understand are racist or and can deny that's like i wasn't being racist i was being something xyz whatever yeah and the things that i really enjoy and get a lot of learning from are things that root out those things in me that I was socialized to be racist in a world that's that's governed by you know white people in power Mm -hmm. those are the things that I find really compelling those are the things I learn from and gain a lot of of just gain from this show feels like someone who doesn't understand those subtleties and is still trying to like prove that these overt racist things are racist. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like, it's like, who's your demo? I guess, like, who's your demo when you're pointing out that people who think affirmative action is racist, like, who doesn't know that? I guess, like, those are the things that are like obviously racist but mm-hmm. but again it's like i don't think that the subtleties 
are there as much. The shows, I think, starts out being subtle, being like with Elena saying, she doesn't say this, but she heavily implies that she's not being racist by hiring Mia as her housekeeper. Mm-hmm. She's says she's helping the community and helping Mia when Mia doesn't really need the help at all. She right. only takes the job to protect Pearl right. from the Richardsons. Right. But Elena thinks it's this high and mighty act that she's helping Mia, helping a working class black person thrive mm-hmm. in Shaker. So I think the first episode is adept at that. But then very quickly, Elena goes through a Breaking Bad process where she very quickly stumbles into this black hole of clueless racism. Yeah, and and I think that, yeah, like the treatment of this just overt signaling of like, this is racist, this is not racist, that sort of stuff is just not... I don't know where the place for that is anymore. I I think that, like, if you don't know those things already, there's a huge problem. But I don't see people, I don't see a MAGA guy who voted for Trump twice, like, watching this and being like, oh, I should reflect on my opinions on affirmative action. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm confused about who this is targeted toward if you're trying to be didactic. Right. Not targeted toward us, clearly. So the big difference, and this is the the big daddy of them all, the big catch, is that it's changed who starts the fire. We didn't start the fire. Ryan started the fire. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Billy Joel started the fire, actually. Ryan started the fire. In, In the book, there's kind of this double twist where at the beginning of the book, the whole family thinks it's Izzy who started the fire and you read that being like well of course they're not going to open with this and that's not going to be the answer Mm -hmm. the double twist is that no it it was izzy (laughs) it was exactly izzy who did that the twist in this show is honesty yeah so (laughs) quote rory scoble so that is i think and you understand by the end of the book you can kind of see how izzy has been pushed out and she realizes that everyone in her family has used pearl and mia for their own personal benefit and they just haven't been good people so you understand why izzy does what she does in the show you clearly see how elena is being terrible and especially to izzy so you can see why izzy would want to burn down the house but then her siblings stop her, which in the book, the family is nowhere to be seen. In yeah, they're that. all like spending the night somewhere yeah. or like they get out. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're they, a broken family. They're all scattered throughout Shaker. Mm-hmm. But in the show, they're all in one place, save for Bill, who's off doing whatever. Doing his own. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, the real victim in this whole show is Bill. Yeah absolutely fucked he's just doing his job he's just doing his job and he comes home his asshole gets ripped apart every single day by elena he's successful at what he does like he literally won the custody battle and elena's like also fuck you i hate you i'm gonna abuse you and then he goes out for a drive in his smoke and he comes home and his fucking house is on fire um yeah sorry bill so then the moody trip and lexi overhear Elena saying that she didn't want Izzy and they just all decide to burn down the house themselves. Now, my jaw was on the floor. He literally sent me a picture of his face. So, listen, 
I'm trying to put myself in this scenario. Say if I lived in this family and my brother Tim, well, I'm the youngest, so I guess I would have been the accident. So, so say <laughs> if you were. so say if say if my parents said this to me, yeah, um, and then I wouldn't. Okay, maybe I have a bit of a freak out and want to burn the house down, but you know but after being stopped. But I stopped okay. Right. But then, imagine if like my brother Matt gave this pep talk about how no, we don't. This is all a trick. We don't want. We don't have to live in here under her rules. And they just like start pouring gasoline everywhere. Yeah. First of all, crime. That's a crime, right? Yes. And and is and Izzy does it because she's going to run away forever. So, but you're saying now Lexi, Trip, and Moody, like they're all taking. Like I can't imagine even what it would take for me to burn down all my stuff. Yeah. Right. I love my stuff. Yeah. And honestly, if my parents disowned me, I'd be like, well, I still need a place to I'm sleep. I'm gonna pack my suitcase with the things that are special to me. <laughs> And find Adam Mayhew's house down yes. the road. <laughs> um, so the stretch, it's its already kind of a stretch for one person to burn down a house. But for a whole family to burn, like, and it's treated as such like a, a gotcha moment. Like, yeah. you thought it was going to be one person. You thought it was going to be Izzy. Nope. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. It's going to be all of them, baby. <laughs> and guess what? Elaine is going to take credit for it. Like, how lucky are oh. Trip and Moody? So in real life, they would go to jail or to juvenile, whatever the hell under 18 people got. I don't, I don't know the system. But they would get in serious trouble. They're, They'd at least get a talking to. They, they are white. <laughs> be, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's like no going back from that and i know there's no going back from elena saying that she didn't want izzy but the jump from hearing that to burning down the house so this is my issue because i completely agree with everything you're saying the ending is not earned at fucking all there is no moment that elena learns about how terrible she's been like, maybe the moment when she screams at her daughter, I never wanted you, was a breaking point. But at the same time, well, there's a moment after where the, her three children are begging her to go after her daughter, Izzy, who's left, begging her to go after. And she's like, no. And she goes to sleep. Well, she hasn't learned anything. Well, she learned something when she admits that she burned down the house. Met She metaphorically burned down the house. But... Right? Oh, right, she says that, but I still don't think that the ending is earned. Well, it might not be earned. Yes, okay. I like, think we're like, in agreement, yes. Yeah. I, I think there's a character arc there, but it is not earned, yeah. Okay, uh, so I, I know we want to wrap up. The other thing that I wanted to talk about in the show is that it is so poorly written that I think unintentionally it makes it sound like as an adoptive mother, you can't be a good mother. Which oh, is a yeah. problematic message to yeah. send people See, home it's, with. It's ambiguous in the book, which is why I think I like the book, despite the coincidences and flaws. The story is also just not usually my jam, but I did like debating these certain scenarios in my head. Yeah. The, the show, yes, it unfortunately doesn't do a good enough job to make both sides. Right. It's very black right. and white unintentionally because I think the script is poorly written. Right. And it's just, it's it's poorly directed, too, yeah. I think. 
we should say on this podcast, we are not making a stance here or there, but we're saying the show has what seems like a negative stance against adoption. Yeah. Unfortunately. And that's I think that. It's, yeah. Well, gosh. I mean, oddly, oddly enough, when I was in Cincinnati for work a couple weeks ago, I met a woman at the cash register in a gift shop at the Underground Railroad Museum, which is, was really interesting. Everyone should go if you if you happen to be in Cincinnati. But she had this book on the counter when she was checking me out. Um, she was checking you out? What the heck? Yeah. She is a bit about too. I'm hot. <laughs> um, but so she was reading this book and I happened to mention it. And I was like, hey, I just read this book. How do you feel about it? And she actually has adoption within her family. Mm. And without me prompting, without me prompting anything, she said that she wasn't sure that she felt good about the portrayal of adoption. Even in the book, she mm-hmm. was a little bit uncomfortable with it. And so I think that if she if she watched the show i think she'd be even oh yeah more disappointed so anyway let's hope she doesn't watch the show to wrap things up final rating for the book i just i feel like this is gonna be savage but like two i just that's not that out of four i mean that's yeah out of four i mean i'm I'm going two and a half okay yeah two um could have been better could have been worse had a lot of interesting questions posed a lot of interesting questions but didn't fully engage me yeah, it has a lot of problems, and the coincidences are the main thing there. But I think it is an interesting read, um, so yeah. Yeah, maybe it's a little harsh in the beginning, but I'm also... I just... Novels are just not... Contemporary novels are just not my, my jam. Um, do you want to give the rating for the show first? <laughs> yeah, the show was just endless. I felt like I was watching... Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies in that they just go on and on and it's nothing but filler and poor poor writing Um, so I mean is it the worst thing we've covered on this podcast well I think the worst show I mean it's funny we've covered four shows on this podcast three of them have been terrible how do you remember those metrics I just can't do that I just I don't know I'm always thinking about the podcast that's what it takes (laughs) But yeah, we covered 11... It's about tw- drive, it's about power, it's about stink, it's about showers. <laughs> yeah, so the only good show we've covered on this podcast was Watchmen, which is one of the best shows we've ever seen. But this show, yeah, I would say eleven twenty two sixty three is a worse adaptation. Mm. This is just kind of vapid and misguided, but it is endless. I mean, not, not 11- zero, but... Maybe a half st- yeah. star out of four. I was going to say, at least 11.22.63 wasn't eight hours of content, was it? I That also felt endless. I think it was. I, it doesn't. It, it was also Hulu. What the hell, Hulu? What the fuck, Hulu? <laughs> Next time I see Hulu's making an uh, adaptation of a book, I think maybe I'll pass. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, but yeah, half half star. I, I mean. Yeah, I completely agree. It was, the show was nominated for five Emmys. How? How? <laughs> Even the set design in this was terrible. This was filmed, actually, I totally called it. I literally looked at Danny and I was like, I bet that was filmed in Monrovia. Guess where it was filmed? Monrovia, California, to made, made to look that like Ohio. That was an insane guess. It was, I can't it believe- was the downtown area. I, I know, but I even still, shot, though. Even... I was like, I bet this was filmed in Monrovia. But but that was a great catch. There are... I'm sorry, but as an industry, how have we not gotten better at snow? 
Mm. Like, there were so many things where I was just like, that's just fucking, that's just canned snow. Yeah. And paper. Foam. There's another scene where Elena is like driving into her driveway and it's fall. And you can literally see on the trees outside that someone literally took plastic orange leaves and glued, like, glued it on a sheet. And they just like threw it over the tree. I'm not shitting you. That's the, the biz, production baby. design is so fucking horrible in this show. So um, are you going zero or a half? I'll give it a half star because I really, I truly enjoyed the children's acting. Nice. And I think some of the supporting actors, like yeah. Anika Noni Rose, I think that she is. I think she does a great job. Yeah. Cool. Well, there you have it. So after we've taken a long break to release this episode, we're going to take another long break before next season, season eight. It's my fault. I've been traveling a lot for Blame work, it on... And I've just, I just a... haven't been in town. We're in San Diego yeah. for, for my work right So, now. yeah, you're the breadwinner of the family. <laughs> no, you're you're my sugar mama, so bring home that bread, okay? Okay. But yeah, that does mean we have to take a bit of a... We're taking another, what, like month or so break, hiatus, and then we're going to come back strong with Series 8. The first episode is going to be The Gray Man, which someone might have worked on here. I think someone had a little hand in that. Speaking of breadwinners, you fool. Yeah, well... Got to meet Ryan Gosling on set. Oh gosh, don't name drop, but but I also met the Russo brothers. So... (laughs) Yeah, and Chris Evans. All right, so thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks, probably four, for Series 8. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure, and we'll see you on the next one.